Well, hey, 11.30, it's good to see you guys. Want to say hey to everybody in the video cafe and those watching online. I'm super excited about this series, this Bystander series, because in it, we're exploring why we believe what we believe about Jesus. And I think answering the why question is important if anybody else is gonna believe what we believe about Jesus. And so, you know, I've invited you in this series to join me on a journey to unpack the evidence that substantiates our faith. It, it grounds our faith because as I said to you the, the previous two weeks, God never asks anyone to take anything by faith alone. God never asks anyone to believe just because. He always gives us a reason to believe. And so in this series, we're looking at the reasons why we believe what we believe because the true Christian faith is always in something and or someone. And in this case, it's in the person of Jesus and it's, it's based upon those who actually saw the miracles he performed. And so our faith is based upon the credible evidence given by eyewitnesses to his miracles or what I'm calling bystanders in this series because seeing is believing. Now today we're gonna to look at a third miraculous sign that Jesus did and what's gonna be interesting about this sign is not just what Jesus did, but where and, uh, where and when Jesus did it because he's gonna take advantage of this miraculous sign that he performed to uh, address something in his culture that he wanted to change. You see, Jesus will use this third miraculous sign to confront a religious culture driven by shame. Have you ever had someone place shame on you? Have you ever felt the burden of shame? Maybe from, maybe in the culture of your family is a shame-driven culture, or maybe you experienced it at school, or maybe at work. And then, you know, what I'm really concerned about today is that you had some kind of religious leader who used shame to drive you, to intimidate you, to motivate you. For the next few moments, I want us to talk just a little bit about shame in something that feels similar, and that is guilt. Uh, shame and guilt are similar. They're both inner burdens we feel, but they're quite different. Shame is a toxic emotion that has no real path to getting resolved in our lives. Guilt, I believe, is a God-given inner burden we feel, and God has a redemptive purpose for guilt in our lives, in our relationship with him. So they're very different, and because Jesus addresses shame in the story today, I want us to spend just a few moments distinguishing shame from guilt, all right? And so uh, I, I look to uh, an expert in shame. Uh, her name is Dr. Brene Brown. She's a professor of sociology at the University of Houston. She's a New York Times bestselling author. She is also one of the most watched TED Talk speakers. And she, as I said, she's an expert in shame, and her research has found that shame is an epidemic in the United States, in our country. And she does a great job distinguishing the difference between guilt and shame. She says that shame focuses on the person. Guilt focuses on the behavior. Shame focuses on who I am. Guilt focuses on what I've done. You following the difference? Shame says, I'm bad, I'm a mistake. Guilt says, I did something bad, I made a mistake. And shame, 
is just a toxic emotion. It weighs you down. It makes you feel bad about you. And I'm, I, want, I want to assure you, God did not create you to feel shame. So how does shame get into our lives? How do we begin to feel shame? Well, sometimes it's spoken into our lives, or, or like I say, we live in a cult, some kind of culture, whether it's family, school, work, somewhere, where, where we, we allowed shame to come upon us. Like, have you ever had someone say something like this to you? Shame on you. Shame on you. Usually they wag their finger too. Mm-hmm. You ever had somebody say something like, bad boy, bad girl? Okay. Notice the difference. Oh, I'm a bad boy. I'm a bad person. As opposed to, no, don't do that. That's, that's going to hurt somebody. See how this is different? Sometimes uh, shame comes into our, our lives through people who use uh, guilt trips. You ever had someone guilt trip you? A guilt trip is what happens when somebody tries to motivate you and manipulate you to do what they want by trying to make you feel bad about something even though you didn't do nothing wrong. It's called a guilt trip, but a guilt trip is just shame by another name. You ever had somebody guilt trip you, maybe uh, an ex-spouse or something? And then what, you know, what I said I'm concerned about is that some of you may have had shame placed on you by religious leaders who used shame to drive you and motivate you or intimidate you. And so I'm, I want to unpack that a little bit because some of us grew up in, with religious heritages that use shame to motivate us. And some of you, this is going to sound strange to you, but, but this really has happened. And, and what I've noticed is that the religious heritage, one uh, that I know and like some of the friends I had growing up in school that we had, is most of the things we were made to feel like shameful for have nothing to do with the moral teachings of Jesus. Like, you can't dip, you can't chew, and you can't smoke, and you can't go with girls that do. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you can't dance. You can't play cards. You can't go to movies. You can't watch most TV shows. You can't drink alcohol. And for some people, you can't drink caffeinated drinks. That means no sweet iced tea. That means no pumpkin spice latte. That means no big red with my barbacoa. It's craziness, right? And it's not over. If you don't go to church, it's a sin. If you don't go to mass, it's a sin. And you can't do anything on the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day is Sunday, even though everybody knows the Sabbath day is actually Saturday. Where does all of this come from? Shame. And it's like, and there's little vestiges of it, I have to admit, still in me. So like every once in a while when I get off on a Sunday, and, and sometimes I need to pick up something at HEB on Sunday morning, and I feel so guilty stand, or shameful standing there in the checkout line at HEB thinking, oh my gosh, if somebody recognizes me on Sunday morning at HEB, they're going to go like that. And, and here's, here's what's worse is those outside the church so I'm going to speak to those of you who didn't grow up with that. You saw such ridiculous rules like that, and it absolutely made you want to avoid Christianity. Well, I just want to assure you that shame has no part in Jesus' movement. Jesus doesn't motivate people with shame. And in fact, can I just say, those of you who have experienced shame, does shame even work? No, it just makes you feel bad about you. And here's, here's the other thing. Shame does, you know, we've said that this year is the year of living your purpose, discovering how, who God created you, you to be so you can do what he created you to do. I found that people who are driven by shame and are under the burden of shame, they never live their purpose because they feel too terribly about who they are. And so today, 
I want to help you get free from the burden of shame. Okay, we're going to do that by looking at this third miraculous sign of Jesus. So let me set up the context for this study. If you remember, we're looking at the eyewitness evidence of a bystander named John. And John was one of Jesus' 12 core disciples. And John spent three years traveling with Jesus and ministering with Jesus, and he witnessed dozens and dozens and dozens of miraculous signs. And in fact, he saw so many miracles that he came to the point where he believed Jesus was the Son of God. For him, seeing was believing. And as he got older, he realized, you know, I need to record all of these miracles that I saw so I can help other people believe too. And so he recorded a document, he, he wrote out the accounts that he saw in a document we call the Gospel of John, which means the good news of John. And at the end of that account, John tells us flat out why he wrote his account. This is John 20, verse 30. John wrote, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So here's John's goal with his account, is that you would believe based on what he saw. Yeah, you weren't there, but he's hoping that you will make a decision based on what he saw and the evidence that he gives, and that by believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that you would have life, an eternal life ultimately, but an abundant life here and now, both. All right, you ready to look at the third miraculous sign? This is John chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Okay, so the, I want to make several observations because this is sort of the backdrop of where the sign takes place, but I think there's, a couple, there's some important observations to make. First, I want us to notice that, that John says in verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem this pool. Now, let me tell you why that's significant because that means that pool was still there when John wrote his account. You know, he's describing something that's there, and he's describing something that the people who received his account could go and look at. Now, let me tell you, tell you why that's important, because it tells us when he wrote this account. Because those of you that know uh, history, world history, know that in 70 AD, the Romans came through the land of Israel, and they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple and all of the grounds around it, and they ran all of the Jewish people out of the land that we know as Israel. And that's significant because... Some people who oppose Christianity tell people that the accounts about Jesus and his miracles were written many, many years after the events occurred, and therefore they're not really credible eyewitness accounts. Well, John says that when he's writing this account, there is in Jerusalem by the temple a pool. And so uh, I think John would have to be an idiot to say that there is a pool there when the pool isn't there anymore if it was written many years later. You follow me? All I'm trying to say is, this is a credible historic account of what he saw. Second observation I want to make is where these disabled people had gathered. They gathered at a pool that was outside the temple grounds. And this is important because 
they were not allowed to go into the temple area because they were considered religiously unclean. Now, I want to make something clear. The laws of Moses never said anything about where the disabled could or could not gather to worship God. Though the, this, these rules were made by religious leaders hundreds of years after the laws of Moses. Okay? And so, these laws said that if you were disabled, you were unclean, and so you couldn't come into the temple to worship God. How do you think that made the disabled feel? Shame. And then to make matters worse, uh, we know from the first century that some of these relig Jewish religious leaders taught people that if you were disabled, it means that either your parents sinned or you sinned. In other words, you deserve what you got. How do you think that would make you feel? Shame, right? And so uh, the third observation I want us to make from this scene, and then we're going to look at the sign, is why the disabled had gathered at this particular pool. And so uh, they were gathered around this pool because there was a, I'll call it a legend or superstition, that an angel of the Lord would fly by and every once in a while the angel would hit the water and when the water was stirred, the first person into the water would get healed. Now, archaeologists have actually found this pool, this pool called Bethesda. And what they discovered is there was a, a live str a spring underneath it. And what they suspect happened is that every once in a while, the spring would bubble up. And when people looking down, they didn't know what was underneath. And when they would see the water stirred but no cause for it, they assigned a supernatural cause to it. So it was a legend. And, and I say it's a legend. I mean, if, the, if God wanted to send an angel to perform a miracle, cool. But I'm saying it's a legend because we have no account from anyone in the first century that ever saw anyone healed when they got into this pool. And so it was a superstition. It was a legend. But the, these disabled people had gathered around this pool. Why? They had never seen anybody healed there. Why were they there? Because they were desperate for hope. They were desperate and they felt shame. So into this scene, Jesus comes. This is uh, John 5, 5. <clears throat> One who was there that had been in, an invalid for 38 years... When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, <coughs> someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, can I just say it's significant that Jesus walked over to him? To begin with, because in Jesus' day, most religious leaders wouldn't go near the disabled because if you got around them and touched them, you would be considered, by their, by their rules, you would be considered religiously unclean and you couldn't go to the temple. So they avoided the disabled. But Jesus wasn't driven by shame. Jesus was driven by love. And so he walked over to this disabled man. And he asked him what seems to be a ridiculous question, Right? I mean, he's talking to a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, and he says, do you want to get well? Do I want to get well? Duh. Yeah. But I wonder. And so if you would allow me to broaden Jesus' question beyond just physical disability, does everybody always want to get well? You know, there's some times I have found that people get comfortable in their discomfort. They... They get into a groove, and then the groove becomes the normal, and the normal becomes a rut. And then they don't want to get out. And sometimes they would have to make some decisions they don't want to make to get well. 
Sometimes they would have to change some habits that they like to get well. And so I, I think this question is legitimate. I mean, think about this. For, for 38 years, the paralytic man hadn't had to really work. I mean, nobody expected him to. And so he begged for a living, and that's what he did. And that was, that was where he was. And, you know, this is no shame. This, this is just, it's a question. I think it's a legitimate question. And so Jesus says, do you want to get well? And the man's response to Jesus is interesting because it shows us where he's putting his hope. He's putting in his hope in someone helping him get in the water before anybody else does. Notice what Jesus says next. This is verse eight. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. <coughs> he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. It was a miracle. Jesus spoke a command to him. Only this command didn't stir shame. This command stirred faith. And think about the faith it took to do what that man did. Think, he'd been laying on a mat for 38 years. His muscles had, had certainly atrophied. But Jesus said, stand up, get up. And he had the faith to do what Jesus said and he stood up and he was miraculously healed. And he picked up his mat. Now, this, this miraculous sign was significant for two reasons. The first is that it, it, it reflected a certain kind of prophecy that was made about the Messiah or the Son of God that was to come in, in the, from the Jewish prophets hundreds of years earlier. You see, the prophets prophesied about the time that the Messiah would come. And they, and they told uh, people about signs, signs that would give evidence that this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God. And so here's an example from uh, the prophet Isaiah, who wrote hundreds of years earlier. He wrote in Isaiah 35, <coughs> then when the Messiah comes, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. You see, this miraculous sign is significant because it points. It points out the identity of who Jesus is. But it's also significant because of where and when it took place. It took place near the temple grounds. And so there were a lot of religious people there, including religious leader, leaders. And it took place on a Sabbath day. And that is significant. Because those same religious leaders had dozens and dozens and dozens of rules about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath day. In fact, we found out, uh, the evidence shows us that they had, get this, 39 categories of actions that you could not do on the Sabbath. Not 39 actions, 39 categories of actions you could not do. Yeah, that's a lot. And that's on top of 613 laws that they sought to keep on top of 250 commandments they sought to obey and 365 prohibitions they sought to avoid. That's a lot of religious rules. And so I, I want us to get this. Jesus, he could have healed this man on any day. He could have picked a Monday. He could have picked a Wednesday. And he could have healed this man anywhere. But he intentionally picked the area right outside the temple on a Sabbath day when he knew there would be lots of religious leaders gathered. Remember I said he's going to do this, uh, perform this miraculous sign to confront the shame culture driven by these religious leaders. So notice what happens next. This, this is where, where the conflict comes. Uh, John 5 verse 10. 
And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, hey, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Okay, think about the scene. Here was a man who everybody knew had been a paralytic for a long time. We find out 38 years. They all knew who he was. And these religious leaders weren't excited for him. They weren't jumping up and down and celebrating with him and hugging him and dancing with him. They weren't, they weren't even celebrating God and thanking God for this miraculous healing. What did they do? They shamed him. They shamed him. Their religious rules blinded them from seeing the hands of God work in a man's life. Think about this. Here was a fellow Jew, a fellow human being who had been in, in a desperate situation for decades and they couldn't celebrate with him because he was breaking one of their religious rules. And this is what I want to say. The way of religion blinds people to the hand of God. In Jesus we have to see the intentionality of this. Jesus chose to do this miracle on this day in that place because he was, he was sending out a message to people. He was saying, hey, I'm starting something new and it's gonna be different than this. You see, this way of religion, that's not the way I'm gonna do it. This is, Jesus started a way himself. He started the way of relationship. You see, the, the way of religion is all about do's and don'ts. The way of relationship is about grace and love. The way of religion is about performing religious rituals to appease God. The way of relationship is performing rituals. We do have rituals, but they're just to express love to God. The way of religion shames people. The way of relationship heals people. Which way do you want? Now, you know, here at City Church, we work very hard to the best of our abilities to lead this movement that Jesus has entrusted into us and to lead it in the way of relationship. And so uh, at times we, we, we say this about ourselves, that means we're a messy church because sometimes it takes some, the way of relationship is messy. The way of rules is very clear. The way of relationship gets messy and we're okay with that. You see, we don't think church is supposed to be the perfect place where perfect people gather to keep their perfect lives perfect. We believe church is a messy gathering of messy people who all need to experience the beauty of messy grace. And shame is not involved in that. Now, don't get me wrong. We, we believe in leading people and to, ex, to experience a new life, but we believe in leading them and loving them along the way, not shaming them along the way. And so as long as I'm your pastor here, that's going to be, we're going to lead the way of relationship and it's going to be messy. And I just need to know, City Church, are you okay with that? You with me? All right. All right. So back to the story. I love the, the, what the healed paralytic says to these. Okay. You, got to get, you have to picture the scene. He's holding his mat. He's probably in the temple area now. And these religious leaders say, hey, who told you you could pick up your mat? And, and you hear what he said? He said, well, the guy that miraculously healed me told me I could do this. And guess what? I'm doing what he says, not what you say. 
I'm going with the guy who healed me, not the guys who shamed me. I'm going with the guy who walked up to me when I was laying on the ground and noticed me, not the guys who walked around me. I'm going with the guy who noticed me in my despair, not ignored me in it. Yeah. So he's the one who told me to pick up my mat. And they said, well, who is he? And this is so funny. Who could make this stuff up? He said, well, I don't know. I didn't get his name. <laughs> well, the story's not over. Verse 14. Later, Jesus found him at the temple. Somewhere he couldn't be for 38 years. He found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Isn't that beautiful? So this man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, he gets to where he can walk, and what is the first thing he does? He goes into the temple where he couldn't go for 38 years to praise God, probably to offer an offering. How beautiful is that? And Jesus assumed that's where he would be, so Jesus went in there and found him. And, and Jesus spoke another word to him, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna pause and, and notice that. Jesus told him, stop sinning. So is that a word of shame? I thought this, this whole conversation was about Jesus confronting shame. These are not words of shame. So what, what did Jesus mean when he said, stop sinning? If you go back and read Jesus' account, whenever he heals somebody or forgave somebody of their sins, showed grace, he all, also cast vision a new vision for their lives as it pertained to sin. So let me give you another example. So you remember the, the story about when uh, some of these religious leaders caught a woman committing adultery and they brought her to Jesus and they said, the law says that we should stone her to death. What do you say? And Jesus said, whoever doesn't have sin, you throw the first stone. They all walked away. Do you remember what Jesus said to her? Where are the others? They didn't condemn you. I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. See, he cast vision for her to see her life in a new way. So, you see, I do want us to understand the way of Jesus, this way of relationship, it's not a free-for-all. In fact, if you go back and look at it, when, when people believed in Jesus, he called them to the highest moral standards ever taught. But his is a way, you know, the way of religion is, is where you lead with rules and you motivate with shame. His way is he leads with grace and then motivates with love. I mean, you remember what he said? Hey, obey my commands because you love God. Obey my commands because you love one another. Obey my commands because you love yourself. See, see how it's different. And so when, when Jesus told this man, stop sinning, he was saying this, stop sinning because sin is what ruins your life. Sin is what keeps you from thriving. I want to help you thrive. And so when Jesus says, stop sinning, in fact, some of you, that may be the word that you need to hear the most today. It's not because he's trying to ruin your life. He's trying to help you thrive in life. But there's something else I want us to notice that happens here, and that is Jesus sought him out. Now, why did Jesus do that? I mean, the, the miracle had already happened, and this man went into the temple to praise God. Why did Jesus seek him out? Because Jesus did not perform these miraculous signs just as random acts of kindness. There was a purpose to them. And it was critical that people knew who he was because the miraculous signs were supposed to identify him as the son of God. And so I, I want you to picture that last scene with me because this is, this is why it's so significant. Here's that para formerly paralyzed man carrying his mat. 
He's in the temple where he hadn't been in 38 years. And, and all of those religious leaders were in there too. What do you think they were doing? They were, they were, they were having the shame look and the shame conversations. But here was a man standing with his mat in the temple talking to the Son of God. He wasn't afraid of their religion anymore. He was free from their shame. And there are some of you who are living under the burden of shame. I want to help you get free. You don't have to stay there. Shame doesn't help your life at all. And when you recognize who Jesus is, that he is the son of God, that he loves you, that he can forgive your sins and give you eternal life, it'll give you the inner strength to let go of all of the shame, to, to just walk away from it. And you can break free. Do you want to be free? Let's pray together. So I'm going to start right there with you. If, if you would say, you know, pastor, yes, I'm living under shame. I'm going to help you break free from it today. And so I'm going to ask you to do what that paralytic man did. And that is to reject shame in your life. He just rejected it. He rejected people who tried to speak shame into him. He said no. And so I'm asking you today to just maybe just whisper. Maybe that's your prayer. I reject shame. And so I want you to think about the people who spoke shame into your life and uh, because of their actions brought shame upon you. Maybe their looks. And just say, I reject it. I reject the shame. And then I think this is an important part of breaking free. Forgive the people who shamed you. If it was a parent, forgive that parent. If it was a grandparent or an aunt or a, uh, if it was a ex-spouse, maybe a boss, maybe a, a friend at school who shamed you. Forgive that person. That's a part of breaking free is letting it go. Oh, thank you, Lord. There's some of you, you're looking at this evidence, the, the evidence of the miracles, and I'm asking you to make a decision. I've not done so so far in the series, if you've noticed, if you've been with me. Today, I'm asking you to look at the credible evidence that there was a paralyzed man who miraculously was healed and that Jesus did it. I'm asking you to believe Jesus is the Son of God and your Savior. I'm asking you to decide today. Just, just whisper out loud, Jesus, I believe. I believe in you. You don't have to understand everything. It's okay. But you do understand that. He is the Son of God. He loves you, and he forgives you, and you can be free. So, Lord Jesus, for those who express their faith in you, I pray that you would do what you promised. You promised to release us from any guilt we have felt from sins that we have committed. And I pray that you would just relieve us of that burden and that you would fill us with your spirit and see within our hearts that we are now your children. We can call the living God Father. And I pray that you would help us uh, to, to follow your way, the way of relationship. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Do you feel free? All right. Our prayer team is going to be available here in the front of the auditorium. We have uh, pastors and prayer team members in the video cafe as well. Um, and so if God's still stirring in your heart, please let us serve you in that way. I want to say something about the circle thing that Sherry talked about earlier. Oh, 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 just give me one more minute. I promise. I'm only one more minute. I know football's starting. All right. 
Uh, and that is the most significant, most significant spiritual growth I've had in my life occurred when I was in, in a small group in a circle with other men. It'll make a big impact. I, and I know it's hard for people who are more introverted, you know, to meet new people, to be in new settings. Hey, I'm an extrovert, and I know it still takes me some energy and courage to do it. But I'm telling you, if you'll do it, if you'll find the right circle for you, you'll be glad you did. It will bless you. Next week, we're going to look at a fourth miraculous sign, and it's one of the few that is recorded in all four gospel accounts. It's that important. God bless you. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.